verses 32 through 35 here at the end of this farewell speech, Paul comes to the end of the matter itself. These are the final words of his farewell address to these brothers, these elders we've just been reading about. He has poured himself out into their lives for three years. He has done so serving them day and night and with many tears. He had lived among them. He had labored and suffered together with them. And these elders had seen by Paul's sufferings and by his tears and by his serving them as he did his relentless, selfless, hard work, the depth and the purity of his love for them. And here they come down to Miletus, realizing that this is it. They've come to the end. It's time to say goodbye. They will never see his face again. And Luke tells us that they were all moved to tears together, and not just a few, but that, they, that there was much weeping. And that brings me to my first question that I want to put to us from this passage this morning, and it's this. What would, your, what would you want your last words to be to a congregation, perhaps, that you have poured yourself into, that you have loved much, and that you've suffered for, and that you have labored together with, and and that you've been with them night and day and with many tears, what would you want your last words to be to them? Or to your own children or those you regard as your own children in the faith, your loved ones? This is something like a deathbed scene. It's not exactly a deathbed scene. Paul still has his full strength and mental strength and physical strength. He's He's not like those who are dying so often are. He retains his ability to tell them anything he wants and to make himself understood. And this is what he comes down to in the end. What would you want to say in that moment? Given the opportunity to unburden your heart at the end of it all, what is wisdom? What is the thing you want those you love? What do you want for them? What do you want them to do? What do you want ringing in their ears? As you depart. Well, here's Paul's words to these brothers. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul wants these elders and all of us to work. He wants us to work hard. He wants us to embrace work, to lean into it, to apply ourselves diligently to it, to work hard with our own hands, as he himself did, setting the example before them. Here's Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle to the Gentiles. He has preached the gospel to these elders. He has opened the scriptures to them. He has taught them the mysteries of God, and he was used by God to transform their lives to turn them inside out and upside down. The way that they think and they live has been radically changed by Paul and his ministry among them. How they relate to God, how they think of God, how they relate to themselves and to one another and to their families and to their neighbors and to their employees and employers and their civil authorities and even to all of nature and creation and to time itself. All of that has been revolutionized by Paul among them, by the work of the Spirit through Paul among them. And if his letter to them later reflects his ministry among them, as it surely does, then he has taken them to the very depths and heights of theology. 
and he has shown them things impossible to fully understand, to the very limits of our capacity to comprehend. He has shown them in particular that thing that goes beyond all other things, that thing that is the measure of all other things, and that is how greatly they are loved by God in Jesus Christ. He has shown them Christ, how God's grace abounded to them in their sin in Christ, and how his grace continues to abound to them now in Christ as they stand under that grace through faith, and and how much it will continue to abound to them in kindness layered on kindness throughout the endless age to come. This is lofty and heady stuff. God has loved his people with an unbreakable and eternal love from before he spoke the first word of creation. And these are the things that he has been preaching to them, that he's been teaching them, that he's been laboring over them to impress into their hearts and into their minds. God has loved you in your rebellion. He has loved you while you were still his enemies. He has loved you when you were without God and without hope in this world. He has loved you when you were following the prince of the power of the air. He has loved you when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And here's the measure of the greatness of God's love for his people. The eternal son of God in human form. Obedient to the point of death, crucified for you and your salvation. And God has brought you bought you at the price of his own blood, he reminds these elders here in his farewell address. And if you are in Christ, you belong to him and he belongs to you and he will not have it any other way. Nothing can separate you from his love for you in Jesus Christ. And here, In this farewell speech, Paul is reminding them of all that he has been proclaiming to them, all that he has taught them, and he's pressing the gospel home to them all over again, this knowledge of God's saving grace, of how much God loves his people in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is always doing. He claimed to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, the risen and ascended Lord of glory who was crucified for us and our salvation. And he reminds them several times that he did not cease day and night for three years to preach Christ to them. He preached in public and from house to house. He testified to Jews and Gentiles, to everyone and anyone of these things. And he did not hold back anything that was profitable but declared to them the whole counsel of God, admonishing everyone with tears and preaching the good news of repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. And now he is commending them to that same word of grace, the word that he has preached to them faithfully and is still preaching to them faithfully, the word that they have believed which they need today as much as they did the first time that they heard it. The only word that's able to build them up and to sustain them, to equip them for the work of the ministry and to bring them to their promised inheritance, the hope of glory that belongs to all who are sanctified in Christ. But here, at the end of all of this, 
Paul is doing also what he always does. He is taking all of this heavenly doctrine and he's bringing it down into the gritty reality of life here and now. Not as some kind of afterthought tacked on at the end like an appendix, much less a caveat or a digression of some sort, a diversion, but as a necessary and inescapable conclusion of the gospel itself. Because the gospel is about life and what true life is, that blessed life Christ lived before us. And that he was crucified to secure for us. The life of those who who know and walk with God in this present age, in the world as it lies before us, in all of its beauty and its deformity, in all of its wonderful joys and terrible sorrows. The end of the gospel of what the grace of God is working in his people, what the Spirit is bringing about in our lives is conformity to the likeness of Christ, to the glory of God. And what do we see in our Lord as he lived and moved among us? Not an idle muser on heavenly doctrine as though that was a kind of entertainment, but a man hard at work in this world. A man who is devoted to preaching and teaching and praying to be sure, but also caring for widows and healing the sick and feeding the hungry. More than this, a man who is hard at work obeying, overcoming, persevering, a man hunted and beaten and stripped and mocked and taunted and crucified, a man bleeding out on a cross, laboring to take his last breath, offering up his body to abuse and to death. No one has ever put in a harder day of work than Christ did on the cross drinking that horrible cup of God's wrath, taking the guilt of our sin on his shoulders and putting sin to death in his own flesh. He worked hard in the flesh, brothers and sisters, with his own hands, hands that still bear the the scars of his hard work that day on the cross. But it's not just a matter of how hard our Lord worked. There are lots of people around us working hard in this world. Not that hard, perhaps, but working hard nonetheless. In fact, you work hard in this world. You're actually here the Wednesday before American Thanksgiving, right? Because you're working hard today. And you've done a lot to be here, and you are working. The question then is not just, are you working hard? That is a question. The other question, the question that has to be attached to that one, that is attached to it here by Paul in this passage is, why do you work so hard? What motivates you to work as you do? What are you working for? Who are you working for? Are you working to get for you and yours? Or are you working to be in that place where you may give and give all the more? Here, Paul contrasts two motivations to work, covetousness and grace. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, he tells them. Paul worked hard among them with his own hands to make sure that he did not become a burden to them, 
to provide for him and his team. But he was also showing them something more than this, how to work hard, not for, for his own advantage, but for the advantage of others. His hard work was for their sake, not to get for himself, but to give and to give freely and to give fully and to give all that he had and all of himself. Paul accepted the responsibility among them of being his brother's keepers. Their blood is not on my hands. I did not hold back anything. I poured myself out. I gave the full measure. I gave you everything that was profitable, even when it was inconvenient for me to do so. He accepted the responsibility of being his brother's keeper. And he was working hard to keep them to his very last word to them. Covetousness is the world's motivation, the way of those who only have this present age, who have no greater transcendent hope and joy in life. People all around us are working hard, very hard, but so many of them are working so hard in order to get, to get what they can out of this life. They work hard to indulge the lust of their eyes and the pride of their life, to get and to hold as much of this world as they possibly can, because in desperation, that's all they have for their joy, for their pleasure, for their hope. Covetousness drives the world on, but in truth, it's really an expression of our spiritual bankruptcy, our lack of contentment in God. It's the desperation of despair, the way of life of those who have no greater hope or joy, but only the prospect of pleasure and the things of this world. Covetousness is idolatry. And so I ask you again, why do you work? What are you working for? For whose sake are you working so hard in your days? You know, some idols dress up in pious garb, right? Are you working perhaps for the prestige of being a great preacher rather than a useful one? The reputation of being a great scholar more than being a helpful one. The honor of being a great leader maybe more than being an effective servant. The influence of being prominent in this world in the eyes of men rather than the satisfaction and deep joy before God of simply being well used in this life. Are you working for self and working merely to get? Or are you working for others and working to give? Covetousness is idolatry precisely because it seeks satisfaction in something other than God. What are you seeking in this life? Those who covet want because they are without God and without hope in this world. And they work hard to get because they are filled with want. But if you are in Christ this day, you are not empty. You may feel empty. You may be tempted to despair. You may be tempted to want, to covetousness. 
but you are in fact rich and rich beyond all measure. Everyone who is in Christ is blessed in every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you are claimed and adopted by God and an heir of glory. The earth belongs to the meek and the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit. If you have entrusted yourself to the care of Christ, then you belong to, then he belongs to you and you belong to him, body and soul. And the Lord is this, is your shepherd and you will not want for anything that you truly need. You are no longer without God or hope in this world. Let this sink deep into your soul. You are no longer without God or without hope in this world, but are indwelled by the living God himself, the spirit of Christ, who is your helper and your keeper. And now in Christ, you are righteous in the sight of God, who has poured his love into your heart, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God himself. And this is the motivation of grace. You are filled by grace with the fullness of God. And you work not out of lust in order to get, but out of love in order to give. You are filled with the fullness of God that you might be free not to Spend your days working for yourself, but for the good of everyone around you, everyone that God has appointed to cross your path in this life, every neighbor you meet, and especially anyone who is weak and in need. Free to work and to work hard, to give and to give openly and freely, even your very life that you might embody the principle of grace itself in all that you do and in all that you are. And so glorify your God who has given you everything in Christ. The call of grace is not to kick back and to coast our way in, but to take up the cross and follow Christ who poured out his life and labored hard to breathe his last breath and poured himself out all the way to the last drop of his blood for us, for the welfare of the weakest and the most needy of all. The call of grace is to work and to work hard with our hands in this way of grace, in our own flesh, freely and graciously helping all who are in need. It is a gritty business to work like this in the world, to embody grace itself. But today is a work day, brothers and sisters. Tomorrow we can rest, but today we are surrounded by a great array of needs and needy neighbors. Spiritual needs to be sure, but Paul particularly has in view here, it seems, material and physical and financial needs. The kinds of needs that the self-indulgent find so very inconvenient and that the self-serving find no use in meeting. But we are called to something better and something higher than this. 
We are called and enabled by grace to love and to love our neighbor as ourself and even to put their interest ahead of our own as we see in the mind of Christ revealed on the cross. We are called to be our brothers and sisters keepers. So let us love as we have been loved. And let us serve as we have been served and let us labor even as Christ has labored for us and over us. Because we are called to Christ's likeness. This is the end of the gospel to all who believe. This is the way of life that is life indeed, that is that blessed life that's lived before God. Indeed, this is the way to abide in that greater blessedness of Christ, which belongs to all who work and work hard in this world to not to get, but to give. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for these words, not what we would probably think to say to our loved ones on our deathbed. Hey, I want you to work hard that you might help the weak. But what is Christ's likeness in this present fallen world? but to hold fast to Christ by faith and to, and to be filled with the Spirit so that we might be poured out, even as Christ was on the cross, so also in service to others, especially the weak and the needy. So we pray that you would help us to be other-minded, to indeed live by the mind of Christ, which is ours through faith, that we might walk in the way of grace, working hard with our hands in this world, that we might be able to give and to give all the more to, the glory, to your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.